The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hi, new friends. I'm Jackie Schimmel, philanthropist, motivational speaker, glowing wife, animal rights activist, and a shoulder to cry on. Not really. I'm a crazy bitch, but a hoot and a half. If you haven't listened to my podcast, The Bitch Bible, brace yourself, pour yourself a stiff drink, and get ready to laugh your ass off or cry. Make sure you subscribe yourself to the Bitch Bible podcast right now. You're going to effing love it. I'm Dr. Deepika Chopra, the Optimism Doctor, and this is Looking Up, a place where you can expect to find raw, transparent storytelling. Listen in to learn real science-based techniques to cultivate more optimism, resiliency, and authentic joy from artists, athletes, experts, and many more. Have you ever walked into the grocery store and got lost in a gaze looking straight at the fresh flower section, the beautiful white lilies looking all magical, but then quickly snap out of it, walk yourself to the eggs and milk section and tell yourself, I can't buy myself flowers. I'm not worth that. Someone else is supposed to buy me flowers. I'm definitely not spending money on that. Well, my guest on today's episode of Looking Up experienced that exact moment multiple times. And after years of childhood neglect, depression, anxiety, shame, and an unbelievable amount of perfectionism to cope with it all, had a really rock bottom moment in which she describes drunk dialing her therapist. She transformed her life through reparenting herself and becoming a ninja of self-love. And well, you may have guessed it, but her advice to all of us and the title of her book, Out Now, is Buy Yourself the Effing Lilies and Other Rituals to Fix Your Life. Tara Schuster served as the Vice President of Talent and Development at Comedy Central. She was responsible for Emmy award-winning shows, She's an author and a playwright. She's transparent about her journey. And well, she's super funny. Tara talks to us all about worthiness, validation, journaling, the simple daily rituals she has created to transform her mind, body, and relationships, and how important it is to stop contemplating it or convincing yourself otherwise. Just buy yourself the damn lilies. How we begin the... Looking Up podcast is with a little intro section that I like to call Looking In, and it's just a very short series of rapid fire style questions. So don't think too long or too hard about these answers, (laughs) just whatever comes to your mind. Tara, is there a book that you have read that has actually changed the way in which you live your life? Please share it with us and why. Yes, absolutely. So I'm going to go with one. It's a little cheesy, but that doesn't take any of its shine away. It's called The Artist's Way by Julia Cameron that I know a lot of creative people have have read that book, but, and we're going to go into it, but I grew up in a household where I was really not supported and really even told you can't be an artist, you can't be creative. And that book was like opening a window into possibility. Um, It's like a 12 step program towards recovering your creativity. And it really changed my life and even set me on a path where I thought, this is even possible. Like, oh, it would be even be possible to have a life I love. So I gift that book. I mean, I've given like at least 15 of that book. It's incredible. The Artist Way by Julia Cameron. This question is probably one of my favorite questions just because selfishly it sort of 
gives me um, a book list. And this book has actually come up a lot um, with a lot of the guests. So just right now, while you were speaking of that, I was like, okay, this is like the, I don't know how many times someone has suggested this book. That's it. I'm going to start it. So thank you. Okay. People think I'm blank, but I'm actually blank. Ooh, good question. Okay. People think I'm super extroverted, but I'm actually a little introverted. I I think, you know, my job in Hollywood was very social, social, social. Go out for these people with drinks, take them to dinner, take them to lunch, always a thing. And I really do enjoy connection. I enjoy meeting people and I love hearing their stories, but I have to be alone for significant amounts of time, like take off to the woods two days, not talking to anybody, not replying to your text alone. So yeah, I think I come off as really just like, I love to be social, but I really need alone time. I totally get that. Okay. Describe yourself as a teenager during your high school years in three words. Ooh, okay. I was super tenacious. And in fact, they used that word in a award ceremony. And I was like, oh, that's the word for what I am. That makes sense. Tenacious, lonely. I was really lonely and felt just really adrift and funny. I I think the whole time I used um, humor as a way to deflect whatever, but I, I was always just like pretty funny. Okay. When is the last time that you cried? Some real vulnerability here. Um, Oh yeah. We don't shy away from vulnerability here. (laughs) (laughs) We dive deep. It was probably last week when the gentleman I'm seeing changed a plan that was no major plan. It was a small detail of the plan and I just lost it. I was so upset. And as I kind of reflected on why I did that, this was a very small thing and I'm not usually upset by very small things. I realized it was the millionth thing in a year of plans changed, what thing you expected turned out a different way. And what I was, because it was like a real cry, like a from the soul cry. And I was like, oh, I'm crying about all of this, about everything that changed this year. That makes a lot of sense. And sometimes I think, you know, when we're just surviving and in survival mode, we're not really able to recognize and give space to the fact of how much sort of grief or loss or frustration or anger is really going on and how much that's taking a toll on us. And it literally takes one small detail of one plan that's sort of the the straw that breaks the camel's back and lets it all out. Did you feel better after you cried? I did. I felt much better. And I, what you're saying, I think has so much wisdom because I, I also felt that when I got my vaccine, when I got my shot, as they were like injecting me all of the sudden, I felt all of these emotions like flooded by emotion. And I think it was because I had been in survival, you know, we've all been in survival mode and all of the sudden it was like a release or something. And, and I've been in my peak I think I'm peaking in anxiety post-vaccination almost because I can, because it's not like total survival mode anymore. 
you know, yeah. I don't know. No, totally. That um, it's like, you know, bad, silly example, but oftentimes in like youth, like in high school, kids get really sick after a big exam. And right. it's just the prep, prep, prep and the survival mode, get the test done. And after the test, you'll see numbers of kids kind of getting respiratory illnesses or getting sick. Their immune system is like finally yeah. able to show you all the stress it's been under. So I, yeah, I think that makes perfect sense. Okay. Three things that have brought you joy today. Oh, I love that. Okay. One, uh, I'm on a text thread with my high school friends and we've just been sending each other jokes all morning. That has brought me joy to a meditation, which I was so not a meditator for most of my life. And I tried to meditate for 10 years, failed. But then in the past year of quarantine, really dug in and it has become a big part of my life. And I can experience waves of joy in it and cultivate those waves of joy. So I did that this morning. And now I'm going to give you a really, really cheesy one, uh, which would be being with you. Um, It's really, you know, lovely to connect. And I really respect your work. And it's just cool when you get to meet somebody who you do respect and, you know, kind of build new relationships. So this brings me joy. That is not cheesy at all to me. (laughs) Um, I'm really happy to be here with you today too. Recording these episodes has brought so much joy uh, to my life as well. Like just being able to hear other people's resilient stories and be able to ask the questions. And and you said you really love connecting with people and storytelling and, and I do as well. And this is sort of the perfect platform, very stressful with starting your own podcast right at the start of the pandemic, just because one of the reasons that I never thought I could do a podcast was literally because technically I didn't think I could do a podcast. And then all of a sudden I had to do it all by myself at home, which is, I mean, of course I have an excellent team at Dear Media, but, um, you know, I thought I was going into a studio and all this stuff, but really the silver lining is I'm getting to interview people from all over and it's not just people that live in LA. And so it's been sort of a blessing, but anyway, I want to jump like right in for those people that don't know you, don't know your work, don't know your latest book, which we're going to talk all about and don't know your work in Hollywood, but you just alluded to it. Can you give us a little snapshot story of, of you and sort of where you got to how you are now and also like what you did in Hollywood, particularly what I really want you to hit on Um, and hopefully you lead into this, but I know that you've said, I didn't set out to write a book. I set out to save my life. And so I want to hear about why did your life need saving? First of all, did you hit a rock bottom? What that was, how you got out of that and how writing the book really saved you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'll start with the Hollywood thing because I think it'll make the whole thing make sense. So I was an executive for many years at Comedy Central. I was vice president of talent and development where I oversaw shows like um, Key and Peele, you know, for their Emmy win and their Peabody Award uh, win. And um, At Midnight, which was an Emmy Award winning show. And I brought David Spade back to the network and I was had this big career and kind of hustled really hard and did it pretty young. And on the outside, to everybody outside, it looked like I had everything together. I'm young. I'm in Hollywood. It's glamorous. I'm working with the most premier talent you could possibly imagine. 
And inside, I was imploding. Um, I was really good at work and really bad at life. And I did hit rock bottom. So I guess what I'd say is I grew up in a house where things came to die. I was neglected and psychologically abused by my parents, just as an, to paint a picture of kind of like what it looked like. You know, my first memory is of a family of deer dying in our pool and seeing their waterlogged bodies on a blue tarp. It was constant death of animals, pets, plants, like orchids that came free with purchase of the house like nothing was taken care of. And so my sister and I were kind of like these feral kids who, you know, were using outward achievement as a way to give us validation because we weren't getting it from our parents. So I think kids like that, they have a couple of options. They either act out and rebel or they become teacher's pet. And thank God that's what my sister and I did. So we were lucky enough to go to private school, although my parents were deeply in credit card debt. Like I was privileged in that respect. It had its own set of problems, but I was just hustling so hard the whole time to validate myself. And by the time I got out of high school, got myself into an Ivy League school, got my scholarships, and then I'm like spit out into the world, I was just a flipping mess of a person. I had no core. I had no values. I didn't know what principles were. I didn't know what vegetables were and like, which one should I eat? And so on my 25th birthday, I hit my rock bottom when the morning after like a blowout night with my friends in New York, I woke up on top of my aggressively floral duvet was like modern Laura Ashley in, in my best girls night out ensemble, which is black Spanx, um, black Spank tights, because you can definitely double up on Spanx, and a sequined Forever 21 number that looked particularly cheap in daylight. And I wake up and I look at my phone and I have all these missed calls from my therapist and voicemail. And I'm like, well, that's weird. Why would she be calling me on the weekends? And as I played back her messages, I realized I had drunk dialed her and I had threatened to hurt myself. And the threat was so serious that she was trying to get me to go to a hospital. And that hearing the worry in my therapist's voice, she was this like permacom Danish woman who always just had a cup of tea to her smile. You know, like I had never seen her express an emotion, really, hearing how worried she was about me made me realize I had a lot to be worried about. And that if I didn't save my life now, I might not have much of a life to live. Wow. And so that next morning, I decided, okay, I don't have parents in the sense that I don't have people nurturing me or taking care of me or And I don't have those skills. I don't, I just don't know how to do it. And if I don't do it, I will always be a neglected kid. Mm -hmm. So I took my sort of, you know, I was like, well, what do I have? How can I approach this? And I decided, well, what if I made a curriculum of reparenting myself? Like, what if I took my need to achieve and applied it to this? 
And so I started a Google doc with just like all the questions I had, like what are values? What are principles? Literally any question I had, put it in the doc. And then I attacked it. I I read memoir, like it was self-help. You know, I, I'd take notes from like, well, Cheryl Strayed says to do this. Nora Ephron says to do this. I watched my friend's parents, you know, and realized, oh, maybe salmon with lentils is a dinner. That's very interesting to me. And I I did this for five years really urgently because I wanted to live. I wanted, and I wanted to have a life worth living. And at the end of five years, I had a 600 page Google doc and was remarkably like a calm, stable, happy adult and, and calm and stable didn't seem possible. Like those seemed not like in the cards for me at 25. So happy, like, and I, I guess I'd use the word more like content, like just like doing good was shocking. And that's when I realized I had a book to write that, that, that I had an offering that I because I had been taking all these notes that I could maybe share it with people who, you know, you don't have to have the worst childhood ever to have some holes in our self-care because honestly, a lot of our parents have no idea how to take care of themselves. Their mental health, you know, for so long, mental health has been so stigmatized and it feels like, oh, I can just get through this. Like I can get through it. I can muscle my way through it. And they never deal with it. But as we know, as kids, we end up dealing with it because we we experience their trauma, whether or not they talk about it. So that is why as an executive, so I was still this like Hollywood executive, but I realized like I have, I have something I want to share with people. Um, And I did both of those things at the same time. Okay. Which I want you in your words to share the title of your book because I love it. And I'm guessing that maybe that was one of the self-care things that happened on your list Yes, and sort of a why not to it. Okay. Tell us the name of your book. So the title of the book is Buy Yourself the Fucking Lilies and Other Rituals to Fix Your Life from Someone Who's Been There. I love that. Okay. So now hearing that backstory, yeah, I'm guessing that somewhere on that 600 page Google doc, buy yourself lilies because they bring you joy or whatever it is and stop waiting for someone else to buy you the lilies. Is that kind of? Yeah. Well, I didn't think I was worth anything. That's the core belief here was I'm not worthy of care. Nobody's given it to me. I don't deserve it. I'm worthless. And so I would stand in Trader Joe's looking at my favorite flower on earth, lilies, and like seeing them, seeing how beautiful they are, imagining how they're just going to give my house a, like a pop of elegance but I would ask like, but am I worth $7 lilies? Like, am I worth this? And they're just going to die anyway. This is a needless expense. That's going to send me on a path of ruin. You should spend your $7 somewhere else. Like this whole negativity train. And as I did this process of reparenting myself, finally, one day I just decided, fuck this. Like genuinely, why am I even working so hard if I can't give myself $7 lilies? And, and so a big part of the book is these small basic luxuries. These are the details of our lives. Like we get really hooked on my wedding, this promotion, this big watershed moment, a new house. Like we think those are going to give us joy. 
but really our life, our lives are just made out of our everyday details. So if you can make the details more enjoyable, more luxurious for yourself, even if they're basic, you can increase like the pleasure you you find from your life. And, and so I, yeah, at the end of the day, if anyone takes anything away from the book, it's to treat yourself with kindness in a way that makes your life more joyful. I absolutely love that example. And it was so like, I could imagine that because I've been at Trader Joe's staring at the lilies too. And they're my favorite flower too. And they smell so good. And honestly, it took, so this is actually like a new thing for me. So I've always loved, love lilies. I stare at them. I look at them. I ask myself the same question, like, ah, you know, like, do I buy flowers for myself, like for the house, just because they do bring me joy. But like, I kind of would stop there and just be like, well, I I always enjoy flowers when they just show up to my house somehow, right? Right. Someone's given them to me. It's a birthday. It's Valentine's day. It's an occasion. And then over this time um, of this year, you know, like everybody else working full time, parent, not have no help. My parents, thankfully were blessed, lived nearby and came over and lived with us for a little bit. And my mom always buys flowers and she buys the lilies from Trader Joe's and they were like everywhere in our house. And they brought me so much joy that like, it was almost like the scent and the, the way they looked and the way they like felt and all of the things that brought up my senses. And so much of what I talk about is like, if something brings you joy and it's not harming yourself or anybody else, do more of it. There's nothing selfish about it. It's actually survival. And like the lilies in my face, like seriously, lilies and hydrangeas in my face that my mom would buy were like, Oh, like I get it. Like what this little thing right. actually made, yes, it may die and it will. And yes, it's eight bucks or whatever it is that, you know, you could have spent on, by the way, if you live in LA, probably just like a latte, not even. Yeah, not um, even. <laughs> so I, ever since then, I'm so much more keen now. Like I'm even looking at like, which I never would have done you know, like maybe I should talk to a local florist and see about like always having flowers. And like, I just never would have gone there. And it's something so small that sets my day up, my week up. Um, It makes me feel like I have a little like skip in my step and I can get through some of these really hard things. And literally all it is, is some lilies, you know what I mean? So I I think, yeah, I, I totally get it. And I'm sure so many people have that same exact experience and can relate. And I love that the basis of your book is all about these very small, doable rituals. I mean, that's literally what I talk about and what I study the science behind is these are these small, everyday, exactly what you're talking about. We focus on these really big events in our future or even, even from our past right. that are sort of these big things that we're all supposed to remember so deeply or work so hard for. But, you know, really life is about what you do over and over and over and what these small aspects of your everyday life look like. And so it's really worth taking a look at and being creative and adding the things that do make you feel good. And actually the opposite, taking out the things that don't make you feel good. I mean, I completely agree with everything you're saying. And like, it's so important to feel the texture of what feels good versus the texture of what feels bad. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I think like, oh, well, I want to binge watch Netflix for like four hours. Like I deserve it. But the texture of that for me is not the same as being with my lilies and meditating. Like it's, we have to get, I think like with practice, you can get really good at like 
what actually feels good to me and what actually feels bad because it's harder. It's a, it, it takes a little bit of work to like discern the difference. And I think in this culture, we are so driven to muscle through things like just get through it, muscle through it, that we all need practice in treating ourselves like we are precious because we are and getting okay with thinking like, oh, I am a precious being. I am worth taking care of. And that that is going to make me stronger and more able to be resilient as opposed to thinking that's just for weak people. I don't have time. I need to muscle through this. Like, I think we're hooked on a um, narrative that just busting and hustling, like that that's the only way when in fact, I think there, I think it's like counterproductive because eventually it's diminishing returns. And that if, if we took better care, we actually could do more. That's actually a really interesting concept. And I really want to ask you about that and dig in a little bit with like, how does someone who has like such the hustler in them sort of from such a small age. And like partly that was because it was so, I guess, relative and related to your own sense of self-worth by getting it, sort of getting the A's and pleasing the teachers and just hustling to get into an Ivy and get scholarships and then get this amazing job. How does that hustler nature, how do you calm that down? And how do you or I guess, how do you sort of balance or boundary that with still wanting to do well and be successful at the things you're doing, but now having learned this really valuable lesson that it's not always about how hard you hustle or how hard you work at something. Um, you know, there's there's more to that that is like the quality of it and it could be less working. But how have you navigated that and how is that going for you right now? Yeah, it's such a good question and is so relevant. I mean, I have two answers, which is one, I basically realized in the pandemic that I have two speeds, which is go, 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 go. And oh my God, I need to lie down. Like my factory setting, it's those yes. are the only two that I have avail- that I had available to me about a year ago with so much work on this. I see that I might have a middle setting. I haven't totally gotten there yet, but how I'm trying to cultivate a sort of a space where I can work really hard, but I can also relax is by learning how to rest Mm -hmm. and really noting what feels like rest to me, like literally writing in my journal when something feels, I, I call it like a sponge bath from my brain. Like when I feel that like kind of like, oh, I'm just calm in my body. My brain is really like chilling out, scrapbooking, meditation again, walking under trees. Like I've just been this year noting, simply noting what feels like that brain sponge bath and then trying at least once a week. I was doing it perfect, which I never try to do anymore. I'd try to do it every day, but like upping the amount of rest I take would, would be the first thing towards what we're talking about. And then the second thing is I got really surgical about where I get my self-esteem from so that I'm never confused about, did I do it well enough? Am I measuring up to someone else's standards? I asked myself, what are the three things that make me respect myself and know that I'm doing enough? And they are showing up to write, being a good friend, exercising. 
Mm. That's it. Those are the only three things I have to do in order to make myself proud. And they're not tethered to success in any way. They're not tethered to somebody else's approval of me. They're unshakable, untakeawayable places I get my self-esteem from. So it's it's those two things. It's that's really helps with the um needing of external validation. Like I genuinely have gotten to a place where I don't care what people I want people to like me, obviously, because I'm a human, but I don't really give a fuck how the book sells, whatever. That's nice, but that's that's not where my self-esteem comes from. The self-esteem came from I wrote the book to the best of my ability. So I think those are the two things, finding places for rest and getting really, really crystal clear on where you get your self-esteem from. Yeah, I love those two things. They go very hand in hand with a lot of the stuff that that I talk about and this idea of places in which you can find rest. I think so many of us on auto are just like, well, it's sleep or it's like you said, like binge watching Netflix. Like I just needed that. And there's so many, and that's fine too, if that's what brings you joy and brings you rest. But challenging ourselves to actually like make this a creative experiment. Like what truly feels good for you and how cool it is that you get to come up with your own sort of like toolbox and what might be like walking under trees for you, which by the way, like sounds wonderful to me, um, just like a walk in general. And I just imagine myself like being in a forested area or like with different types of trees or like some shade and sun sort of like seeping through the branches and, you know, that like spotlight that happens. And then all of a sudden it doesn't because of the wind. Like I just, I, I could see all that. And that's one of my like, areas of joy and also looking at that as an area of rest. You know, rest doesn't mean have to mean sleeping. It literally can mean just like you said, I like that visual of allowing your brain to have sort of this like sponge bath. But yeah, it's relaxing your brain. It's being in a state of calm and whatever that is. So I think that's wonderful. And I think like being able to actually write those things down, like I always urge people to write this stuff down, like have a list of of rituals that feel good to you. And when you're in this like mode of like, I need something, you go through your list because oftentimes in that moment, you kind of forget and you do your auto. So you just go through it and you're like, can I take a walk right now? Can I dance for three seconds, three minutes? Can I, you know, listen to music? Can I take a bath? Can I, whatever it is that's on your, you know, can I watch an episode? Whatever it is that's on your list that you can do that within the time that you have. And sometimes it's a little and sometimes it's a lot. I think like having it written down is helpful. And then yes, absolutely finding where you get yourself esteem from or oftentimes, you know, I talk about what is your true purpose. Mm. And so I think that you really can't go wrong in decision making in your life, whether it's the cereal you're buying to the job that you're about to go for or the relationship that you're in, as long as those decisions really work themselves back towards what you truly value and what your purpose is. And so spending time getting to know that and more specifically, yeah, like what, what makes you feel proud of yourself? I think that those are key. And I'm so happy that these are the things you're talking about. And I know you released or launched your book at the start of this pandemic, which honestly, you know, couldn't have been at a better time, not a good time for the world, but it was actually a good time to learn these tools. And so do you find that the book has really helped you in this past year more so than in any other time? 
Yeah, I mean, I think for me, having done all that work, it was sort of like prep almost. Candidly, like it's not a good pandemic. Obviously, it's miserable and horrible, and the consequences are unimaginable. And and I feel pretty depressed right now about the whole thing. I just after a year and a half of it, I mean, I don't know how you couldn't. But I did feel prepared. If if the my whole book is about how do you build these rituals to actually enjoy the one life you're gifted. Like one of my big takeaways in that whole journey was life is not a series of crises to be endured. It is to be enjoyed. Mm. And so I really approached the whole pandemic that way, that this is the set of circumstances. It is completely beyond my control. What is within my control is how I treat myself and how I treat my community. And so the book was a big gift to me in that way, in that I knew enough to know to go into the pandemic that way. And then the gift I got back was from readers who were just going on the journey with me, like they had just begun and seeing how much it affected their lives in a positive way and being able to be a part of something positive in such a negative time was one of the coolest experiences of my life, particularly because people were home, they were reading, they were looking for something like this. So I think I also got to connect with a much um, bigger audience than if it had come out, we were all just distracted and nobody was paying any attention to their interior life. What is one of the rituals from your book that has helped you that you feel like a lot of readers have talked about that like has been sort of a general or more ritual in common that has brought rest or joy to people? Journaling. Without a doubt, the thing I hear the most about is journaling. I, I was a very cynical journaler at the beginning. I thought journals were for broken narcissists and who has time to journal every day. And I'm better than that. That was my take on journaling. But because I was trying on any advice I heard, I was like, okay, let me give it a shot. And I started journaling um, every day, three pages of unedited, just here's my thoughts. I started doing that 10 years ago. It has saved me. Writing it down has saved my life. I, like you were saying, you know, even noting this is what brings me joy. I think there's something about the muscle memory of your hand and mind aligning that like gets it into your body to help you remember so that when you are in a crisis, you don't just go to, let me feel as bad as I possibly can. You're like, oh, I actually have tools. There are Mm -hmm. tools. And actually, if I look in this journal or if I look at this list I made and put on my desk, which I do, I have my basic luxuries is a list on my desk. I can just see what, what I need to do. I don't need, I don't need to think about it. I can just do it. And so a lot of readers, they have trouble starting journaling. They're Mm -hmm. like, I know this is a good idea. I've always wanted to journal, but I have trouble starting. And so in the book, I go through with a really easy way to begin journaling. And also on Instagram, I've been like doing journaling challenges where I just give prompts so that you don't have to even think about like, I think people get stuck like, well, what am I going to write about? Mm-hmm. I'll just give you a prompt and then write about this so that we can help build the habit. Because yeah, once you build the habit, you'll just do it every day. What's a prompt that we all could write about today if we wanted to start? Yeah. So I'm going to give you my favorite one, which is dear universe. Here is how I actually feel today. 
And the reason I like this one is because it's like declarative. It's like, and it's like big, it's grandiose. It's like universe, like here I am. And here's how I, not not like, how does your mom feel? How does your kids feel? How does your partner feel? How do I actually feel today? Not how I need to present on Instagram. Not how I have to show up on the Zoom call for work. And not even how, oh, I think a lot of prompts, which are a different type of helpful prompt, but it's not about how I want to feel. It's literally how I feel. And that is the first step. For me, the first step in all of this is building self-awareness. And that is why the journaling is so helpful because I, I understand the aspirational, I want to be whatever somebody else, whatever goals you want. And, and that's great. And that's helpful in its own way. But I think people miss the first step, which is where am I presently? Like just where am I? How am I feeling? How do I tune into my actual mood? Because if you can figure that out and get present with yourself and feel comfortable spending time with yourself, everything else is so much easier. It's like the biggest shortcut in the world is getting to know yourself and getting comfortable with holding lots of different emotions that, you know, when, when I'm writing about, here's how I actually feel today, it could be joyful. I'm on this podcast with Dr. Chopra, anxious because I'm anxious about the pandemic, joyful because my sister visited me last weekend and that, you know, brought me so much joy and annoyed because a package that was supposed to be delivered was delivered to my old apartment. Those are all valid and all important. They're all important because they're all within me. Authentic, right. And I think that's the thing that I talk a lot about with people is just getting comfortable with the idea that you can actually feel not only many different emotions at times, but emotions that completely contradict one another at the very same time. And that's actually part of being a human. Like we are meant to feel those things. So not to be afraid of them or to push those away and say, well, if I feel one way, I can't possibly feel the other. Do you keep your journals from the last 10 years? I do. If you look behind me, actually, there's rows of journals. I don't look at them unless I'm trying to find a pattern or I'm like, well, how was I on my birthday five years ago? I seem kind of have a memory of that. And now that I'm a writer, I'm like, it would be good to like have some of the details from those times. And I also don't know, I can't imagine getting rid of them. I think I'm just going to be carting like journals around with me for the rest of my life. I've had a lot of clients before tell me I I love to journal, but I'm like almost scared to put something down on paper because then it's permanent. And what if somebody else sees it or, or they could use something against me. And so equally, I think that it's fine to, I, I think there's a lot of benefit actually in keeping your journals and having that reflection point when you want to. I mean, I recently read a journal or my diary that I wrote at seven and it made so much sense to me of who I am today, to be honest. Um, I used to, I used to write diaries all the time when I was a kid. And I think it's so interesting that we kind of were like, we're encouraged to keep a diary as a child. But as an adult, we like think that's silly when actually it's like as an adult is when we should really be processing our feelings. We have so many more. But um, I also think it's okay for people out there that want to start that have that fear, like put your journal entry through a shredder after if you want. The point is just getting it out and writing it. And if you feel comfortable, there's a safe space you can keep them because I do think there's a lot of value in being able to go back years later or even months later or weeks later. It's actually 
a really beautiful and cathartic experience and it actually can be really helpful. But if not, if that's scary because it's so permanent when already feeling these emotions and saying them out loud is difficult, then yeah. like have to shred them. It's okay. Whatever you need to do to reap this benefit of journaling, which is available to all of us, like whatever it takes, it's worth it. And I actually had that fear. My journal from when I was a kid was stolen from me. And I write about this in the book, but it was used in my parents' divorce proceedings to prove that I was a pathological liar. I was 12 and they stole my journal from me and used it against me. And so I, I totally understand the fear of something that's so personal. It was used to shame me in such a horrible way. So how I got over that my, in my journaling was I, you know, I started off with just one small journal. I hid it in my nightstand under a stack of magazines, some keys, like nobody was finding this journal. And so if you're just starting out, I would say that too. Like, don't tell people about it. Don't tell any, don't talk about it. Have it just for you. It's just yours and hide it or, or do it on your laptop. Give it a file name. That's something completely you know, not journal, like taxes, 2019, you know, something like that. Nobody grocery list. Nobody wants to know. Exactly. And give yourself so much kindness for this fear because it's a totally reasonable fear, you know? Absolutely. Okay. I know we have to end up, but you talked about your basic luxuries. I know you kind of gave us a couple, but what are your 10 basic luxuries that are written on your desk right now? Okay. 10 baths, definitely number one. Two would be sun on my skin. Three would be walking under trees. Four, I would just share the list, except I just moved, as you know. And so it's not technically on my desk right now, but um, I would say drinking tea and putting the tea, the hot mug on my tummy. When I drink the tea, I really like, what's that? Five? We have five? Four. 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 Okay. Then five lilies six, a cool glass of water, no ice, just like a nice cool glass of water. Seven would be a walk with a friend where I get to laugh. Eight would be a hike. And in California, there are just so many beautiful hikes. Nine would be lighting a candle, any candle. It could be a $3 candle from Target or a Diptyque candle, but candles all day. And 10 would be Maldon salt which is fancy salt that I love. I love everything about it. I love the packaging. I love the way the crystals flake. I love just a little bit of finishing salt on whatever I'm eating. I love that. Okay. What is looking up for you? What are you most optimistic about right now? I am really optimistic that this past year and a half has forced us all to look at our priorities and ask if the life we were living previously was the life we actually wanted to live. And I'm really optimistic that people took some time to ask these questions and that we're going to move into the post-pandemic world with more intention and, and with more urgency towards like, this is it. This is your life. If you are not enjoying it, you got to figure out a way to, to change those circumstances because like we don't get a redo. And as we saw, we don't get a timeout. Like, this is it. So I, I'm really optimistic for how we're going to approach this time outside of the pandemic. 
I love that. Um, I'm optimistic about that as well. And so the last thing that we do on this podcast is if we were together, I'd have you pick your own card, but I pick a card for you from my little baby. My things are looking up optimism deck of cards. And if you don't know about them, um, it's 52 science-based or holistic um, prompts or suggestions that actually increase optimism, resiliency, and joy. So similarly to some of the rituals I'm sure you talk about, but these are prompts. They tell you what to do. And um, I picked one for you. So it's your homework for today. Oh, I'm so excited. Okay. This one's your card. This is your illustration. Wow. Change is a challenge for all of us. Name a change you withstood and came out for the better. It can be any type of change at all. A job change, a move, a relationship that was not serving you well. Wow, good job. You have successfully changed and therefore been through one of the most difficult experiences of the human existence. Now you can do anything. So your job today is just to think about one thing that uh, you've actually changed, with a, a change you've withstood. And I'm sure there's plenty and we've talked about some of those. So to do that, to think about it, to sort of marinate in it and figure out how that's part of your resiliency story. Oh, I love it. And it couldn't be more timely. I feel like that was like a, a little piece of divine intervention. So thank you. I'm excited to, to meditate on that today. Thank you so much for being on uh, this episode. I've loved chatting with you and hopefully everyone out there has found at least one little ritual that can bring them more joy or at least can just go buy some fucking lilies. (laughs) Yes. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to Looking Up. For more optimistic content, follow me at Dr. Deepika Chopra. For more info and how to get your very own Things Are Looking Up optimism deck of cards, head to thingsarelookingup.co. If you like what you hear and you want to support the show, please don't forget to rate, review, and follow the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Our theme music is Me and Sade by Tommy, courtesy of Terrible Records. I'm your host, Dr. Deepika Chopra, and I'll see you next Monday for your weekly dose of optimism. Optimism.